Before I start this special edition of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, just a quick opportunity to thank Sora Shimazaki, who is responsible for the cover art on the front of this and every edition of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. Hello and welcome to this special edition of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. I'm your host, Chris Kirkbride. In this special edition of the Financial Crime Weekly, we look at three recently published documents which overlap on issues of interest to the podcast in the United Kingdom. These are first, the National Crime Agency's annual plan for 2022-2023. Secondly, the All-Party Parliamentary Group on Anti-Corruption and Responsible Tax has just published its Economic Crime Manifesto. And thirdly, the UK Parliamentary Committee on Public Accounts has published its first report of the 2022-2023 parliamentary session. All have a bearing on current issues of fraud and financial crime in the United Kingdom, and to a degree might indicate some form of direction of travel for the law and policy in this area. Let's start with the National Crime Agency's annual plan. The plan opens with a policy statement from the Home Secretary with the unremarkable view that the United Kingdom government must protect our security by targeting the most dangerous criminals, especially those who seek to profit from uh, through the exploitation of vulnerable people. Naturally, the National Crime Agency has a critical role to play in this area as the threats evolve, particularly through the use of technology, something that's also recognised by the Director-General. In fact, the use of technology is being used more readily to facilitate fraud, money laundering and broader cybercrime. The United Kingdom government has provided strategic objectives to the National Crime Agency, and there are five of them. First of all, to protect the integrity of the United Kingdom against serious and organised crime groups and networks operating internationally, at the border, both physical and virtual border, and online. Uh, Two, secondly, dismantle the highest harm organised crime groups and networks. Thirdly, to lead and coordinate national law enforcement agencies in tackling serious and organised crime within the United Kingdom. Fourthly, to intensify work to tackle the threat from hostile states, corrupt elites, cyber and economic crime. And fifthly and finally, to play a full role in delivering the government's wider strategy to reduce crime and respond to national security threats. These strategic objectives are wide-reaching, and in recognition of this, there has been a three-year spending commitment centrally to support the National Crime Agency's work. In fact, the the budget set out for 22-23 is just short of £800 million. This is to be welcomed, even if it may not be sufficient with going forward, certainly with current inflationary pressures. However, the funding is crucial since, as the Director-General notes, The threat is increasing exponentially, particularly in the online environment, uh, something which was undoubtedly already moving quickly before the pandemic, but that since the pandemic has become an acute concern. The DJ, the Director General, makes the point that, this is a direct quote, criminal business models adapted and developed in response to COVID-19 measures have become business as usual. There is a disappointing ambiguity in this statement. I mean, does it mean that 
criminal business models returning to the previous mode, or does it mean that criminal business models which developed to respond to the pandemic have now become the norm? While I tend to the view that the pandemic presented criminals with a range of opportunities with a lower, relatively speaking, risk attachment than traditional criminality, whatever the Director General means reflects the changing nature of criminal activity and how circumstance can generate opportunity anywhere, especially for those who mean economic or other harm to others. Indeed, the Director General references possible exploitation of the current crisis in Ukraine, which we're already starting to hear stories about, to be frank. Now, to deliver on the Home Secretary's, the government's strategic priorities, the Director General provides four operational priorities. The National Crime Agency will first increase their understanding of and impact on the criminals causing the most harm. Secondly, strengthen their leadership role with partners and the public. Thirdly, build their workforce to meet the future threat. And fourthly, improve the foundations on which they deliver their operations. Particularly in relation to fraud, though all operational priorities will have a role to play, the National Crime Agency commits to collaboration with private sector, or the private sector, in tackling fraud. These strategic partnerships between public and private sector have been common for many years, especially in the fight against money laundering, where compliance plays a crucial role as the gatekeeper to the services sector, but to banking in particular. The burden on the private sector where it operates as an effective arm of law enforcement can be significant, especially where the sector is under further pressure at the moment to police its operations in respect of that ever-changing sanctions threat uh, which comes from the invasion of Ukraine. Indeed, those sanctions have also impacted firms at an increasing com- time, at a time of increasing compliance cost. Uh, where they've also experienced falls in income themselves, where business was conducted with those sanctioned regimes. So there is some pressures on businesses, not only in terms of costs of monitoring sanctions as they change in response to that invasion of Ukraine, but also in a drop-off in business for those corporations which were doing business with Russia and latterly Belarusia. However, thinking more laterally, the plan looks beyond the traditional private players and reasserts the message which has come through in previous years that work will continue with the cybersecurity community and businesses to tackle cybercrime. This is important since there can be a level of agility in the private sector to respond to new and emerging threats, especially in cyber private sector. Certainly that's what I've always found. Further, the plan envisages work with academia and non-governmental organisations, which I think will be important for reasons I'll come to later, in order better to understand the threats posed by serious and organised crime. These, all acting together, will allow the further strengthening of the protection of the public from fraud. However... I can't help but be reminded of the old adage often used in commercial banking that one can prevent mis-selling but not misbuying. Here it seems that all the heavy lifting is being done by the sector with significant focus on the detection and prevention elements very heavily on the private sector. 
However, I do think that some work could be directed towards the education of the, education of the public in the threats posed by cybercriminals and fraudsters. Yes, there are plenty of news stories out there about unfortunate members of the public who've been scammed out of life, life savings by one elaborate fraud or another, but this is a bit untargeted and haphazard. Perhaps, therefore, working with non-governmental organisations as the plan identifies is the answer so that they can directly reach out to the vulnerable. But... I can't help but think that a concerted effort to push education on to the most vulnerable would certainly help. I seem to recall, but to be frank, age may have clouded my memory on this one, that when the Financial Services Authority was established, it had an education objective. And again, age may have done this, but ran public meetings to enhance understanding of finance and the financial system. I think there was even at one point a money doctor project financed by the regulator, to educate, I think it may have been students at the time. Sadly, that died around the birth of the global financial crisis as money was a bit tight. But I can't help thinking that something very similar would help here, a mass education scheme to educate victims about fraud. Further, the plan explains that the National Crime Agency will improve its officers' ability to respond to emerging, emerging criminal and technological challenges. This is especially crucial in light of the shift in the threat from more physical forms of financial crime to virtual forms of financial crime. The measure of success in relation to fraud, the plan concludes, will be where the impact of fraud is degraded. Now, that's it for the National Crime Agency plan, but it gets a few more honourable mentions in the next part, which looks at the scale of fraud in the United Kingdom's COVID-19 business support scheme. Clearly, the following, as will be seen, indicates that the plan is looking in the right direction, but whether its operational good practice will be heeded is another matter. So, the plan could not have been more timely, for around the same time as its publication, the United Kingdom Parliament Public Accounts Committee, the PAC, published its first report of the 2022-2023 parliamentary session on the subject of the government's COVID-19 business support scheme. It will be recalled that as the pandemic began to bite in the early part of 2020, the UK government announced a first national lockdown, which threw economic planning and SMEs to the precipice of bankruptcy due to the obvious drop in income by forced business closures. Now, in response to that, the United Kingdom government announced a mixture of grants and loans to support businesses until something approaching normality was achieved. The PAC notes that £79.3 billion worth of loans designed to provide support to businesses in the first year of the pandemic was guaranteed by the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, the BEIS. Now, of that nearly £80 billion, it's est estimated, and it's only an estimate, that £4.9 billion, billion will be lost to fraud and error. For scale, taking the government spending year of 2020-2021 as the base, this loss is around one-third of the Home Office budget, around half the budget of the Department of Justice, and about what it would cost to run HM Revenue and Customs for that year. 
or since newspapers tend to like measuring things in numbers of human beings, that would pay for around 196,000 entry-level nurses or a similar number of teachers. It's staggering when you put the figures in that way because 4.9 billion with the best will in the world doesn't sound a lot until you start to put it into that sort of context. Context is everything. Now, the report is not only critical of that estimated figure, but also the manner of its distribution. Some grants were distributed through local authorities, and it would seem the Department for BEIS has little or no information on who received those grant payments. The money could have gone to anyone, and of the amounts assessed so far, over £1 billion could have been lost through this administration of the scheme through local authorities. Now, the process of determining the extent of the fraud, uh, the, the extent of the fraud will take such a lengthy period that the prospect of recovery, so the committee said, will be relatively low. This could be from either the dissipation of funds rendering them irrecoverable, or because the timescales are such that the funds have been passed through such a complex web of transactions as to be beyond identification. They've been, to borrow the language of money laundering, layered. The transactions have been layered. The Public Accounts Committee concludes that the efforts to recover funds is unlikely to act as a deterrent should a similar response be needed to a pandemic or other event in the future. That the fraud happened on the scale apparently seen is a significant concern, especially as there were red flags, namely intelligence and data, two things the National Crime Agency Plan highlighted as crucial to fighting financial crime. On intelligence, the Department for BEIS not only anticipated that the scheme represented an elevated risk, but while on the data, there was an apparent out-of-trend increase in the number of new companies registered in the year 2020 to 2021, which was up around a staggering 20% on each of the previous five years. Indeed, it's damning that the department could not tell the Public Accounts Committee when it gave evidence, could not tell whether it had either sought or received information from Companies House on company formation trends. Getting this information, the Public Accounts Committee concludes, would have assisted the department in generating a fraud risk assessment. Tellingly, the National Crime Agency plan does flag the importance of coordination between entities, that is bodies, in combating financial crime. This may have helped in this context, but if the information was neither requested by the department nor volunteered by Companies House, it does indicate a lack of awareness of fraud detection measures and the importance of information to it across, in this context, two strategically important bodies. This is something, frankly, which could easily be addressed by decent in-house compliance. Now, if I were to be sympathetic, offer some consolation to the government, some sucker, one might be willing to suggest that operating under the circumstances of the pandemic meant that speed was a necessity and that oversight and fraud risk assessment would be a secondary consideration. But that's a kind of weak argument, I think. Businesses every day engage in unforeseen circumstances and have to assess the risk of fraud and money laundering, especially so in financial services. 
And the defence that they were acting in haste is never ever really going to be compelling. It's the equivalent of being in a room full of booze with people celebrating and not knowing it's a party. And finally, but certainly allied to both other publications, the all-party parliamentary group on anti-corruption and responsible tax has published its Economic Crime Manifesto. The group, which is an influential cross-party body of parliamentarians, has said that more needs to be done to enhance the fight against what the manifesto describes as the scourge of dirty money. The manifesto identifies that financial crime does harm in the UK and overseas, highlighting particularly the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and that UK professional services has been attractive to those who wish to hide their illicit gains for too too long, causing significant reputational harm to the United Kingdom and its financial services sector, which is a huge contributor to the economy. Indeed, while financial competitors around the globe are starting to do more, and this is a quotation from the manifesto, in the UK, regulation is too lax, dirty money supervisors do not work consistently, and enforcement agencies are completely outgunned. It is not enough to have one of the toughest anti-money laundering regimes in the world if it is not up to the scale of the challenge. Now, in light of this, the manifesto proposes four reform principles as an acronym TEAR, or TEAR, but I assume it's TEAR, for the hashtag era. They've produced a hashtag for this, which may be all across social media, hashtag tear up dirty money. Now, those four reform principles are transparency, enforcement, accountability and regulation, hence TEAR. Transparency. Well, what are they asking? They need to identify who really owns companies, trusts and assets so that law enforcement, journalists, civil society and more can readily follow the money. And that's being done to a degree with the reforms to the beneficial ownership register. Enforcement, to toughen up policing agencies with enough resource consistently to enforce existing laws and to deter wrongdoing. Accountability, empower parliament, journalists, civil society, the courts and whistleblowers to to unearth criminality and hold the government to account. And finally, regulation, to strengthen supervision of the professions so that the enablers of economic crime answer for their actions. Of course, there will be a monetary impact of the recommendations. The manifesto recommends that the government increase public spending, which is targeted specifically at economic crime enforcement, to £300 million, which would match the private sector funds raised through the economic crime levy, which starts in 2023. When added to the present economic crime enforcement budget, this would raise the overall budget to £700 million, which, of course, as you all know from the start of this podcast, Close to, that's close to the entire budget of the National Crime Agency announced for 2022-2023. The funds could be used to attract and retain expertise and provide resource for effective data. The recruitment and retention of staff is part, of course, of the operational objective of the National Crime Agency 2022-2023 plan. And only last week, of course, the Financial Action Task Force, something I mentioned in the most recent podcast episode, 
The Financial Action Task Force, in its mutual evaluation report of France, noted that a lack of expert staff sometimes slowed investigations. Of course, effective data analytics was highlighted as an issue in the Public Accounts Committee report when nobody seemed to identify the increase in corporations at Companies House as a red flag at the start of the pandemic. All of this, therefore, seems very sensible, very straightforward, and one would have thought relatively uncontroversial. The manifesto also goes on to recommend reforms to corporate criminal responsibility. It recommends two, although possibly three, new criminal offences. It's a bit ambiguous. It provides the following. The government should legislate to introduce new failure-to-prevent offences for economic crimes, including money laundering and fraud. Now, is that two or three? I'm not sure. One for each failure to prevent money laundering and failure to prevent fraud, and a generic offence of failure to prevent economic crime. I'm, I've never been a huge fan of this generic offence of failure to prevent economic crime. I think it will be challenging to draft, and I think it will be difficult to enforce. So let's just focus on those specific offences of failure to prevent either money laundering or fraud. For the two specific failure to prevent offences, the manifesto is light on detail, but it's likely that those offences would mirror the failure to prevent bribery offence under Section 7 of the Bribery Act 2010. Those of you who don't know, this is a strict liability offence, which means it doesn't require mens rea, and what, how it operates is that it's linked to the offences of active bribery under Sections 1 and 6 of the 2010 Act. While it is a strict liability offence, it is subject to a defence of adequate procedures. That is, it's possible for the defendant corporation to escape liability if they're able to show that they had adequate procedures in place. These recommendations are what the youth of today might describe as being on trend, given the pressure for inclusion of other failure to prevent offences on the statute book. However, on trend though they may be, whether they are to be embraced at, at a policy level is another matter. So, there you are, three distinct but overlapping publications which have been published in the last couple of weeks, which I thought deserved a podcast of their own, if only as a reminder, as Lenin said, that everything is connected to everything else. And there was a significant overlap between them. Right, back on Sunday with the next weekly update. Thanks for listening, and if you want to do, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>